0: Come to this realization that in order for us to access any connection to something spiritual in our lives, the journey is not outwards but inwards. Meaning, though, if it's quite ironic, you know, I don't know if you've heard this. I don't know if it's still colloquially used, but back in the day, back in the day when I was young, people would go on these uh, journeys, and you say, "Where are you going?" And they say, "I'm going to discover myself." Or, "What were you doing?" I was looking for myself. Well, where would you go? So they said, well, India. So said, well, I, didn't, I didn't know you lived in India. <laughs> where were you hoping to find yourself? Like, you know, you're like, you're a pure, pure, pure fully-blooded 97.5% Ashkenazi Jew. Do you honestly think that your origins would be in Calcutta? <laughs> Come on! <laughs> so when people say they're going to look for themselves and they go on some kind of journey... Um, why not just instead of looking for yourself in the mountains of the Himalayas, why not try to find yourself inside of yourself? And that was our realization that the journey is inwards, it's not outwards. And you can literally explore the world and remain devoid of self insight, or you can stay exactly where you are, sitting in a room with closed windows and go on the most magnificent voyage of exploration. And the shift that we made was we want to discover the connection to Hashem through becoming more insightful into the spiritual component that exists within us. But accessing or articulating or having a conscious way of expressing where that spiritual component of us manifests is not as easy as we thought. It's quite a slippery thing to catch. And the first step we made, I felt at least for me it was influential in my thinking and experience, was the Balatanya introduces us to what our spiritual side our spiritual side is not. And then we could perhaps extrapolate, well, if I'm not experiencing any of those kind of mind spaces, well maybe the thing that's not that is this. And we're at the point where we're going to the Balatanya is going to start speaking about the other side of our spiritual being, not the what he, actually, it's quite ironic. The Sitra Acha, which means the other side, is what he calls the Nefesh HaVahamis, the animal soul. And so if our spirituality is not within the animal soul, so when I'm not in my animal soul, then perhaps by default I'm going to land up in my godly soul. But let's learn a little bit more about what that godly soul, that Nefesh HaVahamis, is all about. It's in the second chapter. It says the Balatanya. And the second soul of a Jew is a portion of Hashem, of God, from above, really. There's a real emphasis over here, meaning that we carry with us the ultimate, incomprehensible worth, which is a if you could somehow carry with you the most precious possession in the world and that would be not only what you held but a point of self-definition that is what we all carry with us and this is such an easy statement to say and such a difficult thing to integrate because if we would integrate this, it would literally wipe away the majority of our emotional fluctuations, and certainly it would completely dissipate all our issues of the false paradigm of false este- of self-esteem, good and bad. because once I would have a cogent consciousness of the fact that the Olam has placed inside of me the most incomprehensibly precious jewel ever to be considered and that's the part of me which has this spiritual connection the part of me that is a <laughs> mamish. it's a part of the highest being literally literally the highest being the creator of all worlds the one that manifests himself in every living molecule the one that guides takes care of saves directs history has the power to revive the dead all of those Immensely incomprehensible powers exist inside of me, and that's who I'm fundamentally unable to lose that, unable to contaminate that, unable to corrupt that. And that is what I am, that is what I am, and everything else is secondary and tangential. It's there to create a platform for expression, but it's not who I am. If that would be a conscious component of my identity... So my identity would be rock solid. I would live in a state of internal emotional equilibrium. I would be completely and totally humble, not needing the approval of anyone to get any sense of self-worth. Because it would be like someone coming to me and say, yeah, you know what? You're like a fairly average guy. I was like, oh, that's that's, that's amazing. Thank you. Because any compliment that anyone may ever pay me could never even approximate the godless that exists inside of each and every one of us. So anything that could be said would just be irrelevant, totally irrelevant. It wouldn't have a charge. It wouldn't be a sense of uh, capacity to inflate ourselves or not. The only reason we get inflated and deflated by the comments and experiences around us is because we identify ourselves with the periphery of our beings. We identify ourselves with our actions, our physical manifestations, the way our faces and bodies look, the way that we interact with other people, what we do, what we achieve, and what we fail at. And in that paradigm, we're always on an emotional pendulum swinging from side to side when it rises with success and plummets with failure, wherever the success and failure lie. But if I would recognize that my worth is not a product of my output, but a fundamental description of my intrinsic essence, well then, nothing that I fail or succeed at would shift that worth in any way whatsoever. You follow me? So I think that's something which is so, so easy to talk about, so, so hard to feel. And that's really why we are dwelling and delving into this particular subject. It's because... Um, It's because we recognize We recognize that Having that within our realm Of resources and accessibility Will allow us To get a deeper insight Into life And uh, in in this, this, this way that we We have to somehow I get in touch with this by ourselves and by speaking and delving into it, perhaps it opens up for us some kind of insight and we can start to... I, I suppose it's like any kind of study of a new territory that you haven't discovered and you're exposed to this landscape but you, without the vocabulary to describe it, you're always at some kind of loss to access it. So if a person sent you on a project to identify... 15 different species of trees in a forest the only problem was you only knew the names of three trees oak, fern and beech and it's an Amazon forest and there's no oaks or ferns or beech trees so in the, you're, in the, you're in the forest and you are saying, well there's that tree and then there's that tree and then there's that tree it's very difficult to differentiate and define it just becomes this amorphous experience of just vagueness so actually having a vocabulary to describe it allows us to pinpoint the moment of entry and exit if we are having a spiritual experience and that 's why I think the articulating the inner anatomy of self will be a very beneficial thing for us to achieve some level of of accessibility to our, to our inner self which seems to be a crucial a crucial thing for emotional equilibrium but ultimately for the the purpose of existence and spiritual connection and what 's interesting about the the way the Torah sees us is it's very dynamic in terms of the way it works together with the world. Because as opposed to other forms of spiritual practice which value ascetism, and not to say that there isn't an the element of Jews which does um, promote some level of asceticism in certain in certain circumstances, ascetism, it's it's spelt ascetism. So you may have seen the word and just mispronounced it. I mean, when I was reading it on my yacht, I also mispronounced it. Um, so, ascetism means the removal of of all um, physical temptations and pleasures of the flesh. So you live a life which is very, very um, isolated and alienated from physical world. A like lot, a lot of the spiritual practices, both in the East and the West, would involve people. Isolating themselves, going to live in caves, fasting, existing on very basic foodstuffs, um, not engaging in any kind of uh, intimate relationships with women. It's very separatist. So a person who's ascetic, it means he's separated himself from the world in order to gain spiritual enlightenment. The defining component of Jewish practice, which I think may be quite unique, is our spiritual nourishment specifically comes from human interactions, getting involved in the world, from embracing and uh, engaging in the physical world with all its temptations and diversities, and from within that conflicting experience deriving our spiritual energy. So it's very different. So as opposed to perhaps some of the other spiritual paths, which would advocate hours of meditation in order to access that element of the inner self, we may be able to access it specifically through dynamic action. It will be interesting to see. So let's go on to this continuation of the Balatanya that the Nefesh Hashem Yisrael Chelik Elokar Mimal Mamish. So that at this point in time, if none of you are feeling that you have inside of you the greatest... Um, gift ever to be bestowed upon any creation in the world and that you are literally transporting as you move forward in life an inconceivable spiritual grandeur with the very essence of yourself and that the core of your personalities and my personality is this elevated spiritual being that comes from the highest spiritual place if you're not feeling that just stay with me and read on because hopefully one day we will be able to feel that. Says the Balatanya. he brings the Pasuk. Vayipach ba'apov nishmas The nature in which man was created as described in the narrative of the raishis, the the creation story, the world was, as it were, fashioned. And it's called the handiwork of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But when it describes the creation of man, the point of man becoming alive happens through a unique process of creation, through the process of breath. It's the only creature that's described as having his life force breathed into him. And the notion of breath becomes symbolic of life itself. Now, who's breathing into whom? Kivyochel, as it were, the highest possible comprehensible or perhaps incomprehensible being is metaphorically breathing into man and the breath, like a bit of mouth to mouth resuscitation but breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life breathed into his nostrils allows a man to gain living form. So the actual ingredient which created the functionality and the greatness of man, until then he was an immobile body, purely material, matter, but then he was breathed into, he inhaled something of a higher, higher um, force and that was breathed into him. That's called nishmas chayim and it was breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life. And the Paralitanyah quotes the Zoya Hakadosh that says, de when a person breathes, he's breathing his own life force. So the metaphor goes further, that the breath of life breathed into man is, as it were, the essence of Hashem has been breathed into man, has been breathed into Adam Arishon. From the inside and the most internal part. Because when a person breathes out, he's breathing out his life force. If a person stops breathing, he's there. That's who I am. My life force is actually my breath. And that's actually fascinating. Because most spiritual systems focus heavily on the breath. The breath is looked upon as almost a very easy access point to spiritual enlightenment. And in the yogic tradition, it goes as far as different kinds of breath, different alternative alternative nostril breathing, inhaling, holding, exhaling, slow breathing, fast breathing. Breathing and spiritual state are intimately connected. I'll tell you a story which actually opened up my eyes to the power of meditation. I had a friend that we were in Orsamach awesome together back, 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 back back in the day, back in the day before they'd invented telephones and people still went around in horses and carriages. And my friend and I used to spend many, many hours chatting and we lost touch for for probably over a decade. And then he reached out to me over an email which really described like updated me on his life. And he described how he'd gone through a really traumatic year, and in the course of one year, he'd both been diagnosed with a malignant tumor near his throat, as well as having a severe motorbike accident, accident which shattered uh, his entire rib cage. And in the process of recovering from both of these traumas, he had an operation where the The malignant tumor was removed, and Baruch Hashem, he's healthy and good, he's 120, and he had to rehabilitate himself from the the motorbike accident, and as a result, he had to relearn how to breathe, because if he breathed from his upper chest, he would put strain on his ribcage, so he had to learn to breathe from his belly which is called diaphragmatic breathing. And in order to practice this, he had to do this for 45 minutes a day to rehabilitate himself. So he started breathing, literally focused on breathing for 45 minutes a day uh, with no intention of gaining any kind of spiritual high or the like, simply to rehabilitate himself. What he started to experience was what he described as the higher states of consciousness. Whoa. He just became aware of them. Because he's doing this every day for 45 minutes. And so he started to read all about yogic traditions, and a lot of the experiences that he had while breathing were articulated in their works. So this prompted him to go on an um, excursion to India, where he took it further. And uh, he's, I think, still on a spiritual journey. Um, he's very connected to Judaism, and he says a lot of they sent me a photo of a picture of a Magain David outside one of the ashrams with the inscription Shema Yisrael and Shemichad underneath it, which is interesting. So he says, like, beyond it all, everyone's, like, working with this concept of unity and, and oneness and etc. But what captivated me in terms of the power of this meditation was he came past Israel on one of his trips back from India, and we studied a work together, a, a particular piece in, in the Ma'aral. And we are learning it together, and uh, I read the words, and I translated them, and then I saw his face, and there was a sense of like, his, his, his eyes lit up, and he said, yes, I get exactly what he's talking about. And I felt so estranged, because all I did was read a text and explain something intellectually, and I could see from his reaction that he grasped it on an experiential level. And then I suddenly realized that, do you know what, I'm a, well, I'm a, I'm I'm the thing over here that I'm about to tell you about, because he told me this analogy, that there was um, this incredibly beautiful art gallery, and they had some of the finest works spanning from the early, early ancient art through Renaissance Impressionists, post-impressionist, modern art, cubism, futurism, the works. And there was a curator of this museum who knew every painting, the materials. He knew the artists. He even knew some of the subjects that were painted in in, in the works. And he was incredibly, incredibly knowledgeable. And there was the janitor. The janitor's job was to make sure that the the gallery was kept in good tip top condition he had dust the the paintings and make sure everything was in order and as a result of being a janitor there for for 20 years or so he became intimately familiar with all the artworks but he knew nothing about it now if you had come to me and said well if I want to learn about the pictures who should I ask? should I ask the janitor? should I ask the curator? So I think most people would say, well, speak to the curator. He's the guy who's got the the know-how. There's only one small problem with the curator. He was blind. So he knew everything. But he had never seen any of the paintings. He had never experienced what it meant to look at a painting. He had all the information, all of it. He could tell it to you verbatim about every painting. And in Rembrandt's Night Watchman, he could tell you about how everyone is captivated by the movement of the light and how Rembrandt was famous for that. In Picasso's Cubist works, he could say how he's challenging the perception of space and three dimensions as opposed to two dimensions and how that interacts on a two-dimensional surface with the impressionist he could speak to you about optical mixing when how the picture comes in focus as you go further away he knew it all but he'd never ever seen what a painting looked like and then when he told me this analogy i said yes "Mm -hmm. that's pretty like where at that point in time i felt was a lot of my torah i was a blind curator i had a lot of information i had a lot of information but somehow my level of experience wasn't matching up to my level of information. And that's why it would encourage me to, to, to be able to focus also, and not to discredit the value of, of knowledge and study, because without that we have nothing, but to focus on the experiential aspect of, of our lives, because without that we are all blind curators happily discussing something about. This philosophy that we espouse. But, nevertheless, that entire realization in his personal epiphanies came through simply through breathing. So I don't think that's coincidental, that man's creation of his spiritual self came through the breath. I I mean, I don't know how far we can go with this, but we also know that a surefire way to die is to stop breathing. Um, those of you who, who, who are not convinced about this, um, so you can try holding your breath, but that's not going to work because you'll faint and then you'll start breathing again. So what you have to do is you have to go to the mikvah. Okay? You go to the mikvah, go underneath the water and then stay there. And you'll find after about a couple of minutes, you'll die. Um, <laughs> because if you don't breathe, then you tend to die. Well, if you die from not breathing... So then, vaystoyes, using my talmudic reasoning and Yiddish <laughs> phraseology, vaystoyes, which means it comes out, shows out, that breathing is your ongoing new interaction with a life-giving creative force. Every breath we take, every cake we bake, every egg we break, we'll be watching you. We've got you pinned. Make sure you've not sinned. Every cake you bake. Sorry. So <laughs> when you when you start to think about the the power of breath, it becomes quite incredible that our life is given to us one breath at a time. So with each new breathing in, new each new inhalation, it's, I'm at the point before I'm about to inhale and. A new lease of life. A new lease of life. So as I breathe, I'm engaged in the process of an intimate connection between life being given to me right now, right here. And that that when you actually sit and meditate on that notion of what it means to be breathing, it can really be very powerful and clear in our minds and, and just get ourselves orientated to the beauty of Being. I don't know if we could say as far as that the creative process of Hashem breathing into our nostrils the breath of life in the form of the original breath of life. Is that what happens every time we breathe? I think that would be a bit of a jump. But nevertheless, the fact that the way of creating man came about through the breath into the nostrils, which means that was the first accessibility to life. But more important from the perspective of the Tanya, the breath that was breathed in was HaKadosh Bokhu's essence. And that's how the Nishama got there. It was breathed into us. So we have within us this incredible spiritual um, self. It's a self It's a neshama It's an nefesh It's a self And we're going to see That the self Has got personality And it's got traits And it's got a It's got a, it's got a cognitive part It's got an emotive part And it's like it's a, it's a fully fledged thing So let's go a bit further Now this next part In the, in, in, in the Tanya Is going to be very uh, Different from our perspective Of how life comes into being and it's going to require, it may be a little bit of, it's going to require probably a little bit of suspended disbelief. Suspended disbelief means you may out things which seem incongruous and difficult to connect to, and that's okay. Just keep them on the back burner and uh, live with them. Suspended disbelief is one of the most powerful instruments of Uh, Movement forward When you can't suspend Your disbelief It sabotages Your forward journey When you can suspend You say I'll just put that On the back burner I don't really get What that's all going on about But I've got enough um, Of a track record To move forward I've got enough faith I've got enough Security and trust In the relationship That it's going to be okay So I don't really get this But okay I'm going to go with it Keinalda's Marshall Neshamas Israel The Neshamas of Israel The Jews Olu B'machshava first, as it were, arose in Hashem's mind as a thought. Because the Torah describes us as Hashem's children. So if we are children, let's reckon where does a child come from, and that will allow us to allocate where does our essence come from. Because if Hashem's Kiviyochel, our father, that means that just as a father gives life to his children, Hashem gives life, life to us. Now, where does the origin of the conception, when a child is conceived, where does that begin? Where's the origin? Now, this is where it's going to be a little bit complex for us to grasp because we often see the reproductive act as an animalistic action which can be described in the books of biology as a simple seed fertilizing a simple egg. When you see reproduction in that form, you'll have a very hard time understanding the Tanya. The Tanya doesn't understand reproduction to be that um, that materialistic. He understands that reproduction, the conception of bringing new Nunashama into the world, can't begin in the physical act of uh, a simple interaction between sexual organs – There's obviously, if if there's going to be another human being entering into the world with the majesty of what humanity carries with it, it must start in a way, way, way higher place. So I'll leave you to ponder that, as we do have to stop for now. And I look forward to continuing with the help of Hashem on Sunday.